the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and the author of a new book called Long Days, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting by Andrew Bombeck. And Andrew joins me by phone. Good morning, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Oh, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, I got to ask you when you talk about the um, uh, cultural history of uh, modern parenting, um, I, I think of the stretch between, oh, using a television reference. Um, leave it to Beaver and the Cleavers and uh, the Cosby Show. And how much difference was there in what we aspired to in terms of parenting in all yeah, I think there are I think there are some differences between the Cleavers and the Huxtables. I mean, for one, um, Claire Huxtable, the mom in the Cosby show, was a working mom, whereas uh, June Cleaver was a stay-at-home mom. Um, the 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 Huxtables had a had a bigger family, and of course, it's it's uh, it's a more diverse cast in in the Cosby Show. But there there still is a traditional element to the Cosby Show that's different from parenting today. So, for example, Claire Huxtable was a lawyer, and yet she had the most flexible hours of any lawyer you would ever see. <laughs> she was basic. She was basically home all the time. So they never they didn't have any housekeeping or nanny help she did all the housework she did all the the preparations for getting the kids off to school and getting the kids home from school uh, basically was working as a stay-at-home mom alongside being apparently an incredibly successful lawyer and so to me what that says is that even in the 80s um, we weren't ready for the idea of a true working mom and we still like the idea of mom doing it all and then you know uh, Heathcliff Huxable the Bill Cosby character he he was sort of like the typical, well, when dad comes home, he's treated like a royalty. And when dad gives advice, it's considered like this blessing upon the kids. And, and again, that's very typical of, of what Ward Cleaver was like. You know, Ward would come home, sit down with Wally uh, or the beaver, give some pit statement, and it was considered like the word of God. And it was sort of similar to the way Heathcliff was treated in the household. So I still think that gender dynamic um, was was very similar between the Cleaver household and the Huxtable household. 
And I think that's vastly different from what the gender dynamics are in, in modern households now. And I think pop culture has, has evolved to get more realistic in the way it represents parenthood. Well, and, and let's talk about that a little bit, because those two examples um, really kind of, you know, I, 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 mentioned, I mentioned that it was perhaps the, the goal we, we aspire to in terms of parenting and relationships and, you know, everything running smoothly and all of that. Um, but what's it like in real life? Well, what's it like in real life now for parents is that it's, it's not as smooth as, as television shows of the past have presented. Things don't get wrapped up in 25 or 30 minutes, and they, they may never get wrapped up. Um, and I think the, the, the biggest difference for parents today is that the, the, the job and the tasks of parenting really are never-ending. It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year job even for those parents who are who are working outside the home, who might be having two jobs outside the home, there is no break. Weekends are not really break. They're just a whole new job of, of being devoted to getting your kids um, from Friday afternoon to Monday morning um, through an endless parade of activities and assignments and, uh, and responsibilities. So it's exhausting. I think a lot of parents find it exhausting and, um, you know, some of the feedback that I've, I've gotten since the book has been out is that, you know, everybody seems to empathize with the, with the part of the title that's long days. And everyone says, yeah, days are really, really long when you're parenting. And um, I haven't heard that much feedback on the short years yet because I'm hearing mostly from parents who are in, in the grip of it now. But that's, the, but that's the irony of it, Andrew, and I thought that title was so apt because the days do seem like they go on forever in, in the description of weekends, you know, being a different kind of busy than weekdays. And, um, you know, it, it's even like when we go on a family vacation and we come back and we need a vacation from the vacation. Um, but the short years is it really at the heart of it goes by so fast. It is, and I think that's what I I have heard from people who are either at the end of their parenting cycle, or <laughs> whose, or whose kids have already sort of moved out. Where they say it really does go by, you know, in the blink of an eye before you even know it. And that's what's to me sort of the paradox of well, being I a have parent a, today. Is I have a granddaughter uh, down in Virginia, who it seems like she was just born. She's ten years old. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel the same way with with my kids. You know, like the you know they it, it's a it's amazing to me to see what grade they're about to enter now because it <laughs> seems like they just started school and now they're already you know in middle school. But I I think you know this is sort of the the paradox of being a parent today is that it's grueling, but you're also being told enjoy the gruelingness, enjoy 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 this because it's going to be over before you know it. And, and it's very hard for parents to say, like, I should be having a better time. I should be savoring these moments. I should be thrilled with this opportunity to be with my kids because it is going to be over before I know it. And yet the pressures of, of being a parent today make it hard to have that enjoyment for, for so many parents. One of the things that we have heard a lot in the last 10 or 20 years is, um, you know, be a parent, not a buddy. 
But how mm-hmm. do you provide the kind of uh, discipline and guidance necessary as a parent and savor the time you have with with your children while they're young and living at home and 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 have that camaraderie um, at the same time yeah uh, i mean that's that's a really you know challenging aspect of being a parent I, first of all i would say i think you can be a parent and a buddy uh, but a different type of buddy than than you know a peer buddy you can be sort of an older respected buddy but i think to what you're saying is 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 you know how do we enlist our children to be cooperative rather than obedient that's that's you know a, a phrase that a parenting coach shared with me saying you know anybody can make a child obedient um, but what you really want is for your kids to be cooperative and it gets down into sort of different models of of how we uh, interact with kids so you can use what's called a power assertive uh, mode of disciplining a child where you say, you know, if you don't clean your room, I'm going to ground you for a week. You can use what's called a love withdrawal model, which says, if you don't clean your room, that's it. I'm not talking to you for the rest of the day. But you can also use what's called an inductive discipline model where you, you sit down with the child and say, you know, this room is a real mess. And I know what it's like. My workspace is a mess as well. But I can tell you that every week I make a point to clean up my workspace because I find that once it's clean, I feel better about being there. I'm more productive at work. When people come to visit me at my office, I'm, I'm, I'm not embarrassed about the mess. It just makes me feel better at, at work to have a clean workspace. And I feel like you'll, you'll be happier with a clean room. You'll be able to get more done. You'll be able to have more room to play. You know, so it's those kinds of conversations where you basically try to teach a child how his or her behavior affects himself and her or herself, and how that behavior also affects others. This inductive discipline modeling, where where you're 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 basically moving them towards a point where they understand their place in the world, is considered to be the best way to to get kids to be cooperative rather than obedient. Now, the the pushback is it takes a lot more time and a lot more patience out of parents to do that than to just say, if you don't clean your room, you're not going to your friend's house, which, which is something that takes about one minute to say, and kids will respond to it. But in the long term, it's, it's clearly better for, for kids in terms of how they're going to interact with the world if they see another model, um, which is more inductive. <laughs> when, when my daughter was at the appropriate age, um, my, my go-to was... Uh, you know, if, if if you don't respond, you know, correctly to this, um, I'm going to dress like a hippie and take you to the mall. <laughs> and the look of terror. I don't know exactly where that, where that fits into those three models. That's, uh, that's, that's the embarrassment model, which is uh, also very effective. The look on her face was, was just sheer terror. <laughs> um, but but how do, how do we do those things without setting up a wall between us and our children or is is the wall something that needs to be there and ultimately needs to be climbed by the children well i'm not sure there needs to be a wall so you know part of the process of writing this book was of course reading a lot of sources and really diving into as many parenting uh resources that were out there whether they were books 
blogs, podcasts, TV shows, movies. But also part of the process was just looking at other parents and just observing who was doing it well and who was having problems. And there are some parents that you just watch and you say, you know, this person really seems like they're born for the job. Like they just have a general knack of dealing with their kids that just seems so intuitive and, and so instinctive. And then the word that really comes to mind eventually is respectful. Parents yeah. who are doing it well are, are, in essence, treating their kids with a tremendous amount of respect um, and really making sure that their child feels like they're in a place where they can share their feelings with their parents um, and can actually have open discussions with their parents. And that, and that, that kind of relationship really can only be born out of the parent starting with, with respect. And you know, there, there are plenty of books that, that, that tell parents this right from the beginning of, of, of life, that you know, you're changing a baby's diaper. You may think that there's nothing you can do at that point to really connect with the child other than just sort of cooing at them or um, looking them in the eye, but you can talk to them and say, this is what I'm doing. You have a poopy diaper. I know it's cold when you don't have your diaper on and don't have your clothes on. I'm going to do this as fast as I can, but I'm going to get you clean so that you don't have this poop on you, and then we'll get you more. And this whole idea of just communicating with your kids and getting in that practice and treating them with respect, treating them the way you would want to be treated, it does bear fruit as the kids get older. Now, again, the pushback that I, I, I have to... The caveat is that this takes a lot more time and patience that many parents today don't feel like they have. And I'm not a perfect parent by any stretch of the, ma- of the matter. You know, I, these are ideals that I know I should be shooting for, but every day I make mistakes and you know, I, I, I snap at my kids and, and then all of a sudden I realize, you know what, there's a much better way I could have done that. And, and, and so it's, it's a process. It's something that, that parents like me who aren't, born to be parents who aren't instinctively, you know, you know, good at this job have to work at. And that's part of the, that's part of what I describe in the book is what that work feels like as a parent today. You know, when we look at the world around us and we see all the, all the political divide and all the animosity and vitriol, you know, this whole notion of, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're a moron. There, there seems to be a lack of respect and a lack of trust overall. Is, is that a result of opportunities missed as parents? I sure think so. I mean, I think the most important job we have as parents is to model behaviors that we want our children to follow. You know, so... I mean, when you um, mentioned respect, all of a sudden it just kicked right in because I've been arguing for years that, you know, people just don't have respect for each other yeah. and for themselves. Yeah, no, I think this is so important. And again, you know, I'm not trying to hold my life up as a perfect example because I, I, I have, you know, suffered um, the pitfalls of not doing things right on my own. But, uh, you know, for example, one time at the dinner table, my wife and I were, were arguing over something and my kids were saying, like, why are you guys fighting? And, and, I, and then I stopped and said, you know what? You're right. Like, there's a way for mommy and I to disagree about something and respect each other's opinion and we can together come to a consensus or a compromise that shows that we both understand each other's a- position. Andrew, I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can uh, talk uh, some more? For, for sure. For my, sure. Gu- my guest is Andrew Bomback. We'll be right back.
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We uh, continue our conversation with um, Andrew Bomback. He is Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and author of Long Days, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting. Andrew, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No, that was those were those were interesting uh, commercials. Um, Andrew, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, respect and showing respect for kids, and and trying to set sort of an example of being respectful. But yet, kids rebel, and and um, it's. Is that a necessary part of their growth and development, and and do we as parents overreact? I I think uh, the the idea of of a child rebelling can be sort of refrained as a child sort of asserting its independence, and I think that is an important part of their growing up. I think one of the lessons that I've learned in in really diving into this space is that kids are a lot more independent and resilient than we probably give them credit for. And if a child is rebelling, the, the most likely reason is that the child is feeling that it's not getting the respect for its independence and resiliency um, as, as it deserves. Well, so, then that raises um, the question, um, you know, does does tyranny is probably too strong a word, but... but does an autocratic uh, sort of environment have to exist for rebellion to occur? I think it definitely helps. Um, but I think, uh, you know, there are different flavors of everything. So obviously the more autocratic the household is, the more likely there will be for rebellion, whether it's overt or covert. You know, you can you can have an auto, you can run an autocratic household and believe that your kids are, you know, following all of your all of your dictums to a T, but when they're not, you know, under your supervision, they may be rebelling, rebelling in their own way. But I think it still comes back to this idea that we, we, we should be setting examples for our children. We would not want to live in an autocratic regime. We don't treat our peers um, if we're in healthy relationships in that, in that manner. So why would we be treating our kids that way? And there's a great quote from Brene Brown, which is that you should dare to be the adults that you want your kids to be. Um, and I think that's really important. You know, kids look to us. This is what we were talking about before we went to the break. Kids look to us to model behaviors. And if we're not modeling those behaviors ourselves, we have no chance to have them sort of follow the, the, the behaviors that we want them to do. If we're, you know, if we're not practicing what we preach, we're never going to get the buy-in from our kids. Interesting. Um, now, the book, Long Days, Short Years, is a cultural history of modern parenting. What does the history of parenting tell us? Are there, are, are, are there certain phases that parenting has gone through, and, and what are those, those major turning points? Yeah. So, I mean, taking a long view, which would go back to the beginnings of this country, with each generation, the, the, the trend has been that parents have exerted more and more control 
over their kids or have at least tried to exert more and more control over their kids. And that, that clearly has culminated in the current generation of parents, you know, and, and this trend of helicopter parenting. So, I mean, that's been going on, you know, if you go back to the 1700s, compare it to the 1800s, compare it to the 1900s, there's more, there's, there's less and less independence for kids and there's more and more control over kids. And um, this has been described beautifully in, in a book called The End of American Childhood by, by historian Paula Foss. But, you know, my book focuses more on the last 50 years because, in my opinion, the changes that have occurred in the last 50 years are more profound and have occurred in a much more rapid way than have ever occurred between generations of parents. So you know, every generation of parents will look back at the prior generation of parents and say, we're doing this very differently than our parents did and then how our grandparents did it. But the, the differences between parents today and the parents that raised them, who, who um, are from the prior generation parents, to me, are the most pronounced. And, and the, the rapidity with which the, the job of parenting has evolved is, 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 uh, is so accelerated um, in the last 50 years, which is why I focused on that. And evolved, evolved how? I, I remember when I was a kid, and I'm old enough that that goes back a ways, and there, there was this, you know, once, once we were done with dinner, we could be out running the, the streets of our neighborhood, and the rule was we had to be back in the house when the streetlights came on. Mm-hmm. I, can't I mean, Im- that's not too different from, from my childhood either. And I can't imagine the, the, parents allowing their kids that kind of freedom now. Exactly. So the, the, biggest, the biggest evolution is the amount of time and money that parents spend on kids today compared to 40 or 50 years ago. So if you take, uh, and this is a statistic I discuss in the book, if you take a working mother today and you compare her to a stay-at-home mom in the 70s, the working mother today spends equal number of hours with her child and spends much more money, inflation-adjusted, than the mom of the 70s did on her child. So we're basically giving all of our time and all of our money to kids now in a way that prior generations of parents didn't. Um, That sort of idea that we have to be present for them at all times, that we can't leave them alone, we can't... Um, leave them unsupervised, to me is fueled by an anxiety and stress that parents today feel that is unique to being a parent in the 21st century. And I think that's mostly fueled by a concern about what world is out there now, and more importantly, what world kids are going to inherit. Uh, inherit. So if you think about the shrinking economic landscape, if you think about the changing global climate, if you think about um, social disparities, in general, parents today, if, they, if they're just keeping up with the news, it's, it's, it's not a great world that we're handing over to our kids, and it looks like it's going to get worse. And so these anxieties and stresses translate to saying, like, I need to watch my kids at all times, and more importantly, I need to prepare them as best as I can for this ever-shrinking pot that is the future for them. And, and, and that, I, I think, is what's fueling this idea that we, we have to be around them. We have to invest everything we have in them. Otherwise... We're not setting them up for any chance of success in the future. Um, what are some of the things that have evolved in terms of um, 
guidance and and discipline corporal punishment was still you know a big part of of parenting when i was a kid growing up and you know i don't I, i don't think i have any resentment about that now you know Maybe I do, and I don't know it, <laughs> but <laughs> but 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 I don't I don't think of it that way. I don't think of of my uh, I don't think of it as abuse the way some people might. And um, what what has changed, and um, are we better at guiding children, or have we just made the leash really short? Well, I think. I mean, I think we have moved away from the corporal punishment model, which is good because, again, that that to me signals a shift away from a power assertive model to other ways of trying to teach children the appropriate behaviors. You know, again, like you, you can scare a kid into doing anything, really. You know, you can say, you know, a child will, will act out of fear because they, they're, they're intuitive enough to know they want to avoid that kind of punishment. But that, again, doesn't necessarily prepare them emotionally for a healthy uh, adulthood. But, you know, I think one of the things you're touching on here with guidance and advice is that 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 industry has remarkably changed in the last 50 years. So, you know, uh, when when my parents were raising me, the the most popular uh, advice book was Dr. Spock's book. And for a time, Dr. Spock's book was basically the second most popular selling book of all time, second only to the Bible. So, I mean, it was essentially the Bible of child rearing. And one of the things that Spock says in his book over and over is to parents that they should trust their instincts, that they actually are better at this than they think they are, and which is a funny thing to say to someone who's bought a child advice book to say, you know, you're, you, you actually know more than you think. But he, his was a reassuring message, and it sort of just was sort of, more of a guide than, than, than sort of an explicit instruction of here's things that will help you harness your natural talents and natural instincts. If you look at parenting books today, they're an entirely different beast. Many parenting books today start from a point of a parent who's in crisis and is basically saying to a parent, You've, you, you, you can't handle this. You don't have the, the tools to do it. We're going to give you the tools. You need to follow the advice that we're laying out in this book step by step um, almost like following an instruction manual if you want to get the ship back on track. Um, so it's a very different tone than, than, than Spock. And it's obviously effective because these are, these are best-selling books now. And again, I think it's appealing to that anxious parent who, who feels like, like they're lost and, and, and they're hopeless and they, they're just desperate for some sort of life raft that will get them, get them back on track with their kids. And they're willing to do anything, even if it means completely shutting out their own instincts and following a script that an advice book lays out for them. You know, I've said and heard it said many times that that it often seems like, you know, kids are raising their parents. Um, <laughs> to to what degree is that real, though? I mean, we think of, of parents as, as raising children, but mm-hmm. children can have a tremendous effect on on people becoming parents a hundred percent you know i i think if you want to again touch upon some of the the respect issues we discussed earlier uh, you know parenting and 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 the parent-child relationship 
really can be viewed almost in like a 360 degree manner where parents are learning from their kids just as kids are learning from their parents and more importantly the exchange of information the exchange of feelings and the uh the uh, attention to each other uh can should be you know maybe you know as close to as equal plane as possible one of the things that i'm really interested in because as we discussed in the in the intro my day job is being a doctor um and you know i i think there are some parallels between effective relationships between doctors and patients and effective relationships between parents and children. And, you know, they both on the surface feel hierarchical. You know, you would say, well, of course the parent should be instructing the child. And of course the doctor should be instructing the patient. That is true to some extent, but as a doctor, I know if I want my patient to actually take the medicine I'm prescribing them. If I want my patient to actually feel good about the the treatment regimen I've laid out for them and actually adhere to that regimen, I need to take my patient's perspective into account. And I need to develop what we call a therapeutic relationship where we have informed decision-making at all levels. So I can't just tell a patient, here's a prescription, you take it, come back and see me in four months and you'll be better and uh, I don't want to see if you're not taking the medicine. I need to actually sit down and have a discussion with the patient. I'm concerned about this. I think this medicine would help. Let me tell you all I know about this medicine, and then I want to hear from you what your thoughts are about what I just told you, and, and make sure you, you're on the same page as me as to why I'm thinking about this problem and why I think this treatment plan will help. And this sort of informed dialogue is the model of modern medicine being effective in terms of patients actually adhering to treatment plans that they are comfortable with. It's actually the, you know, the, the model that I, I wish had been used in the rollout of the vaccines because I think if those sort of discussions had been held at a, at a, at a granular level with, with the bulk of society, we would have seen a lot less pushback on vaccines than, than, than we did, unfortunately, because you know, those, in the medical, you know, those in the medical community, 99.999% of us, jumped at taking a vaccine. It was the first thing we did, you know, as soon as we were allowed to get vaccines, and yet we didn't see that buy-in from all of our patients. And I think there was a communication gap there. But you can translate that to, to parents and children. You can have these dialogues with kids that, again, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I think will help. I want to hear from you. What do you think? Um, do you think this is going to help? And these sorts of respectful dialogues and informed decision-making um, can can bring parents and and kids to a similar level, eye to eye, and hopefully get buy-in on both sides for what you know is a therapeutic plan for for making the family happy. Are parents relying too much on um, school teachers to raise their children and technology like uh, television and video games and social media, mobile devices, to babysit their kids and? Has the pandemic and the the various quarantines and lockdowns um, changed or solidified that? So I think there's there's multiple parts to your question. So yes to the part about are we relying too much on screens and video games and electronic devices to do some of the work of parenting? Um, you know, it's, it's a necessary evil. I do it myself. Just this morning, I needed to have about 40 minutes where I could go for a jog 
and my wife was sleeping and I just, the kids were awake and I said, you guys just sit in front of the TV. I'll be back in 40 <laughs> minutes. If, you, if it's an emergency, wake up mom. But essentially the TV there is an electronic babysitter. But um, the other part about teachers, I think uh, I would push back on because what I've learned in this process is that the, to raise kids effectively and to raise kids in a way that as a parent, you feel like you're, um, you're surviving and thriving as a parent, you need help. It's, it's impossible to do it alone. It's impossible for even to do it just two parents. The more you can enroll other respected, trusted, loving adults who really have your kid's best interest at heart, the better you'll, you'll feel about the job of, of raising a kid because you will have help. And teachers are a great source of help. Um, they're experts. And unfortunately, there's, there's been you know, a move to not use teachers as much as we, we can. The same thing goes with neighbors, with relatives, grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, after-school instructors, certain babysitters. I sort of think of it as that you, if you can sort of construct a circle of adults around your kid, like eight or nine adults that you know have your best kids, uh, best interest of your kids at heart, you're going to make the job of parenting so much easier and so much happier for you as a mom or a dad. And what about the impact of the um, of the pandemic? Did that put us uh, too close together, or <laughs> or or did it actually improve something that that had been had we been growing apart? Yeah, I mean, I, I devote the last chapter of the book to how the pandemic sort of shines a light on parenting today because I think. You know, the pandemic created some new challenges for parents, but it also magnified some existing problems for parents that, that were present even before the pandemic. But one of the things I think we learned from the, the beginnings of the pandemic when everybody was you know, following stay-at-home orders was, again, this idea that it's very hard when you lose help, whether that helps in the form of school and teachers or the, it's, that help is in the form of, of older relatives or babysitters that you rely on, this idea that as parents, we need to sort of farm out our kids at some point during the day. It, 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 it's, it's hard for us to admit that, but it is true. We need breaks and we need other people to help us. And you lose that when you're, when you're following stay-at-home orders. Another thing that the early part of the pandemic, at least for me, showed was how overscheduled my kids were. Because all of a sudden, all these activities that made up their day were gone. Mm-hmm. And we needed ways to, to, to fill the time for them. And I think it showed us that um, the kids are sort of undergoing this, what I call a concerted cultivation of their childhood where everything is sort of planned out. And it also showed that when they have freedom, kids can be pretty creative. Kids can definitely do more on their own than we were giving them credit for. They can entertain themselves. Um, In in the book, I relay uh, a morning where my oldest daughter basically said, let's all go to a stream and get as dirty as possible like, we'll put on rain boots, and I'll promise I'll, I'll help everybody get into the bathtub when we're, when we're done. And it was, like, such the opposite of what we do as a family. And it was it was an incredibly fun morning, and it was the type of thing we never would have done pre-pandemic because they, they would have had a violin lesson or a soccer practice or a Girl Scout meeting to interfere with that kind of free activity. That's funny. I remember seeing a little, uh, a little comic strip that... Um you showed this this little boy sitting in the living room and he's got his laptop and he's playing some kind of a game or it's a game controller or something and his mother says why don't you go outside and play 
in the next frame shows the kid standing at an open window with his laptop on the sill and he's he's playing <laughs> the game but he's outside <laughs> yeah exactly well, I think that's like I, another very good piece of advice that I, I got from a child-rearing expert um, was about screens, saying that, look, you have to recognize screens are a part of kids' lives today. They can't live in a if – if you try to raise a kid in a screen-free environment, they're going to basically be a hermit. You know, they, 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 if they're going to interact with society, they need to know what screens are and how to use them in a healthy, productive way. And she said one rule that you can follow is – you can never use a screen outside. So if you get your kid, if the kids are outdoors, screens are off limits. And that's a way for them to appreciate what the outdoors allows them. And then, of course, there are other ways to think about it where you say, okay, I'm going to set a limit on how much screen time you get. But if you cooperate and you show great behaviors as a reward, I'll give you an extra 30 minutes of screen time. Um, you know, it's hard because, they, again, so much of this is how we model behaviors for our kids. Kids see us on our phones all the time. So when we say you got to get off screens and hold on a second, I got to go on, on my phone to check something from work. It's, it's a mixed message that they're getting. So the yeah. more we can model, you know, healthy behaviors with screens, the better chances we have of our kids sort of following that example. And, and I think, you know, maybe it's, it's worth mentioning that, that there should be at least one meal a day that everybody has together and, and screens aren't allowed. Oh yeah, I mean, in, in our house, no no phones or screens are allowed at the dinner table, um, even when I'm on call, um, which is uh, you know uh, it's hard to be away from your phone when you're on call from the hospital. I put the phone on a very high ring volume, but it's in it's in the next room. So if the phone rings, I say, guys, I'm on call. I have to take this, but I leave the dinner table. I don't take the call at the dinner table just because. I, again, like I want to respect the rules of our family, where we say dinner time is a no is a no-phone, no-screen zone. Well, the name of the book is Long Days, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting by Andrew Bombeck. And uh, Andrew is, um, have, I, have I got that right? The um, Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. That is absolutely correct, yeah. And this is not your first book, Um what's what's next for andrew <laughs> what's next well um you know the book that i just put out the long day short years to me is really not an advice book it's more of a of a dissection of parenthood and um you know my next book that i'm starting to work on now it, it, it's again not going to be an advice book but it hems a little closer to an advice book, because what I'm, what I'm exploring now is some of the things we touched upon in our discussion, which is this idea of how do we get buy-in and how do we get cooperation um, in, in our lives, whether it's with our kids, whether it's, it's with our colleagues, whether it's you know, in my job as a, as a doctor with my patients, and this idea of how do we forge um, respectful relationships um, and what, what I've learned from being a doctor and doing that, and can I apply it? To, to my family. So uh, I, I'm working on a book about, about adherence, how we, how we stick to doing something even when we don't necessarily want to do it, but we know it's the right thing to do. Well, Andrew, we have to, uh, we have to wrap it up there, but um, 
Thank you for spending this time with me and the listeners. Uh, do you have a website where people might be able to find out a little bit more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Yeah, I, I mean, first I would love to thank you for having me on. This was a great discussion, and to tell your listeners if they are interested in reading Long Day, Short Years, uh, it's available at all online retailers and Hello, most brick-and-mortar stores. Um, and most brick-and-mortar stores, and um, it'll be in public libraries as well. Um, and if they want to interact with me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, so just find me there. Well, thanks, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice vaccination to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles meningitis and whooping cough that's why nearly all parents choose it stroller or carriage basketball or soccer so get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two for more reasons to vaccinate talk to your child's doctor go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800 cdc info Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 48 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. 
Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop attorney generaling. We got a concert to get to. I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I'm seven years old, standing up in my crib. I kept falling out of the crib. I really, you know, I mean, they gave me a bed, but I kept falling out of it. And uh, I'm standing up there. My parents are going out, see, and they're just walking back and forth. We live in an apartment uh, building. There's only one bathroom, and there's my bedroom, then my parents' bedroom. And they have to pass by my bedroom in order to get to the bathroom. And if the door's open, I can see them. And I know they're going out because they keep bumping into each other, you know. <laughs> boom, dang, boom, get out of the way. Boom, where's my sock? I don't wear them, you know. So, uh, this is before babysitters, when parents did not believe in babysitters at all. You know, the philosophy was, what? Let some stranger look after my kid? I'd just as soon leave him home by himself. <laughs> so, uh, I'm staying up here. I got my sleepers on. I wore sleepers till I was 12. I love sleepers because I used to put mashed potatoes in the bottom of my sleepers and make my mother feel them. Mom, Phil's a dead rat. She'd faint. <laughs> my mom would faint for anything, man. I used to get hit in the head with a rock and cover up the blood. She couldn't stand blood for nothing, man. I'd go home, stand right behind her. She's cooking. Mom, look, blood. <laughs> She'd faint. So I'm standing up in the crib, and they both come up, you know. And now, the whole thing to them is that they have to scare me to make me stay in the bed, see. They tell you some kind of a lie. That's what the parents used to do. There's a green monster out the door. If you get out of that bed, they'll, he'll eat you right up, you know. So, I'm a con man. I really am. I'm a, I'm, I'm a good con man. Boy, I never went to school if I didn't want to. My whole thing was so beautiful. My mother used to come in, boom, open the door, and, uh, and I'd be in the bed, you know. And she'd say, aren't you going to school? And I'd say, Mother, is that you? Just bring your face here so I can, I can touch it before I leave. You know, never went to school one day. And always got out at 3.30 to play. Used to go up to her, 3.30. A miracle happened! I'm well! You're not well, get back into bed. Honest to goodness, Mom, a little angel came right up. On my bed, hit me with a wand, twang, said, go out and play. And she had to believe the angel. I knew that. So anyway, I'm standing in my crib. And I said, now, don't get out of the, the, the crib, please. See, my, my father, I love my father's uh, approach. It was basic. Stay in the bed. 
That's all. You know, stay in the bed, see? I knew how to answer him. I will. And it was, that was it. You know, he'd go, and then I'd jump out of the crib, you know. <laughs> Papa's beautiful, but mothers, they give you a half hour. Stay in the crib because your life is important to this and that. Oh, yes, I've heard that before. <laughs> but my old man would just come up, stay in the bed. Right, Dad. And he'd leave. He said his piece, you know. So now my mother comes in. I don't get out of the crib. Yes, mother, I'm tired anyway. I, I'm going to sleep. The Sandman's beating me to death, and I'm so tired. Pardon me for not seeing you to the door, but I'm just tired. I'm telling you right now, don't get out of that crib. Now, the last time you got out of the crib, you went in and listened to that, that radio and heard that awful Lights Out program, and it scared you so bad that you smeared jello all over the kitchen floor to make the monster slip if he came at you. And your father went into the kitchen to get a drink of water, slipped and hurt himself. <laughs> now to make sure you don't, you don't get out of this crib, we've placed over a hundred black poisonous snakes around your crib. <laughs> and if you so much as put a toe out there, they're gonna bite you, you're gonna swell up and be dead until morning. <laughs> I don't see no snakes, they're invisible. <laughs> and she left, boom. Boy, I'm telling you right now, I'm so sick of this place, I'm gonna run away from home. They're always putting black snakes. Snakes! You get out of here! This is not your room, this is my room, and you just get out of here! I don't care who sent you in here, this is my room. I didn't ask you to come in here, nasty snakes! Snakes, do you hear me talking to you? Huh? Snakes! I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> Come on, have a heart on a guy, will you? Are you out there? Listen, snakes. Now, now don't you bite. Don't you bite me. I'm gonna put put my toe out there. Don't bite it. Just give it a little snaky lick. Come on. Okay, listen, you can bite it just a little bit, but, but don't put none of your juice in it. <laughs> Nothing. Well, go ahead, I bet you're not even out there. Go and bite it, suckers! Yeah, I know you wasn't out there. Lie to me, boy. I'm going to listen to the radio. We had a Philco radio, it was about six feet tall. Had 287 knobs on it, of which only two worked, off on volume and the station selector. <laughs> The extra knobs were if you'd lose one, you could replace them right away. You don't have to go to the store. And I love to get scared to death. Anything that has scared me to death, I loved it. I loved Frankenstein, a wolfman, and a mummy so much. I used to sit right up front. And then they would come at me and I would squish myself under, into the orchestra pit. I hid all over the place. I'm telling you. I had pictures of them all over my house. Never looked at them. Was scared of them. There were three programs that were scary. One was suspense. That wasn't too scary, that was suspenseful. Then there was Inner, uh, Inner Sanctum, where the guy played the organ. Do, do, and then he would come in, good evening, and he was so happy to scare you to death. And he opened that door, and then he told you a weird story about his uncle Harry who had lost his hip bone or something like that. Oh, man. But what really scared me was when he closed the door. <laughs> At the end, of, I knew somebody was in the house then. 
and I start smearing that jello. No monster gonna get near me with that jello on the floor. I've tripped up many a monster with that jello on the floor. Yes, sirree, Bob. And now, I got my radio, I turn it on. You gotta wait maybe, maybe eight days. It'll heat up, you know, eight days. Spider, you get one. And then I'm just, ah, there's good news. Good evening. That's the guy. Go ahead, scare me to death. I'm ready. I'm ready. Scare me, man. Come on now. And welcome to Lights Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, scare me. I was dumb enough to do whatever the guy said to do on the radio. Turn your lights out. Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. They're out, they're out. Go on, scare me to death, I'm ready. Tonight's episode is about a chicken heart. A chicken heart that ate up New York City. Yeah, go chicken heart, go. Go get him, eat him up chicken heart. Scare me to death, I'm, re I'm ready, I'm ready. chicken heart was kept alive in a laboratory in a vat. Special solution. Half blood, half sodium salicylate. One day, a careless janitor knocked the vat over. He went to get a rag to clean it up. The chicken heart grew. Six foot, five inches. And in search of human blood. The janitor came back, opened the door. The heart ate him up. What? Go get him, chicken heart, go get him, go get him. moved out into the hallway. Rang for the elevator. Fourth floor. Ah! Go get him, chicken heart. Go get him. You will. Moved out into the street. Ate up all the cabs. Beep, beep. The Empire State Building. Ate up the Jersey Turnpike. It's in your home state. It's outside of your door. And it's going to eat you up. Oh, I got my jello. Start smearing it all over the floor. Get out of here, chicken heart. I set the sofa on fire. You won't come near smoking fire and jello. My father came in the house and what? What the hell's the sofa doing on fire? Come in the house, the chicken heart's gonna eat you up. Hurry up, okay. Zip. What chicken heart are you talking about? Do it on the radio. 
So you're an idiot, turn it off. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.